please turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. It's a short book. It's only three pages long in my Bible, so it may be a little hard to find. Um, But if you found Jonah last week, it's just a few pages over from Jonah. There's Jonah, then Micah, then Nahum. Um, I've been encouraged by your singing this morning and and the truths that we've sung together, Um, and I'm excited about opening the word with you this morning. Pastor Brent launched our July series on the Minor Prophets and began with the book of Jonah last week. And we learned about Nineveh, that great city, the capital city of Assyria, the most powerful nation in the world. It was an unusually cruel city. As it conquered nation after nation, it did unspeakable horrors to the people in those nations. God sent Jonah to Nineveh with a message of divine judgment. It took a while because Jonah didn't obey God immediately, but when Jonah gave his message to Nineveh, the people repented in sackcloth and ashes from the king on down. God relented from the disaster he had planned for Nineveh because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what we learned about last week. Well, as time passes on... um, This is about 140 years after the book of Jonah was written. Um, Nahum was probably written around 630 B.C. Nineveh and Assyria are still the world power. By this time, the ten northern tribes of Israel had fallen to Assyria. Samaria, the capital city of Israel, fell in 722 B.C. Judah, the two southern tribes had not been overrun by Assyria yet, but they were a vassal state to Assyria, and they paid tribute to Assyria, sending much of their gold and silver to pay Assyria for protection. Things were not looking good for Judah. They were heavily oppressed, and it seemed inevitable that they would be overrun. The book of Nahum, which means comfort, was written to bring comfort to Judah in this time of distress. Before we get into the text, I want to prepare you a bit for what's coming. Pastor Brent mentioned last week that Jonah is a frequently told children's story. Nahum is not a frequently read book, and it is not a children's story. Some of the language is quite graphic and may be shocking to you if you haven't read it in preparation for today. So I want to give you two presuppositions that I have as we approach this text. First, I believe Nahum is part of the canon of Scripture, that it is the Word of God. I believe that it has been written for our learning. And so when 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, I believe that Nahum is part of that Scripture that has been breathed out by God and profitable for us. Second, I believe that God is sovereign, holy, just, wise, good, perfect, and righteous. Everything God says and everything God does is right. So if God says or does something that I can't understand, the problem is with me, not with God. God is the judge of the world. I am not the judge of God. 
God's ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts than my thoughts. So having said that, I think that there is much that we can learn about God's character and his ways as we look at this book together today. So let's look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The title verse of Nahum identifies it as an oracle, a book, and a vision. An oracle is a prophetic saying, and we'll see that there are several throughout the book of Nahum. It's interesting to me that he describes this as a book. It's the only prophetic work described in the title verse as a book. So I don't want to read too much into that, but it could be that God gave this message to Nahum. It was written down and given to the people in written form. Whereas other prophetic messages originated as sermons preached by the prophet and then later written down. Regardless, the title verse tells us that this book is about Nineveh. It's concerning Nineveh. It also identifies for us the name of the prophet, Nahum of Elkosh. Now, apart from this introduction here, we don't really have any other information about the prophet Nahum. We don't know a lot about him. We don't know a lot about where he was from. Um, It gives us his hometown, but we don't know where that hometown was. So this introduces us to the book. But let's go ahead and start looking at the contents of the book. Chapter 1 describes the character of God. Let's start reading in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Here in these opening verses, we have five descriptions of the Lord. And we see repeated there in verse 2, three times it refers to God as an avenging God whose vengeance is directed at his enemies or his adversaries. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that vengeance belongs to God. Deuteronomy 32.35 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Deuteronomy 32.41 says, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Verse 43 says, For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. We will see all throughout the Bible, it speaks of God as a God of vengeance. And so it should not surprise us when Nahum declares the Lord is ready to take vengeance on his enemies. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds like the Old Testament of God. Isn't the Old Testament God, you know, out for punishment and judgment? But in the New Testament... You know, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. Yes, that's true. Um, We do have those instructions from Jesus. And that's exactly what we are supposed to do. But the reason that we can show love and kindness and forgive our enemies is precisely because we leave it to God, the rightful judge. He will do the right thing the right way at the right time. The New Testament also describes God as owning vengeance, that it is his prerogative. Listen to the words of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So I would just want to say, as we get started this morning, that if you have been hurt or abused or mistreated and have not received justice, please know that vengeance belongs to God. It is not for you to go out and seek revenge. Now, I want to give a caveat that this does not mean if it's, if it's a criminal matter, you don't get the police involved. The government has been given, provided by God to seek justice. But I think we all understand that justice in this lifetime is not always perfectly achieved. And so ultimately we find justice in God as the one who will make all things right. Vengeance belongs to God and he will repay. Please don't allow bitterness or desire for revenge to consume you. God will take care of wrongs done. Not only does Nahum start by talking about the vengeance of God, but he gives us three attributes of God in these opening verses. He says that God is jealous. Now, jealous is a name or title that God gives himself in Exodus thirty-four fourteen. God is jealous of his name. He's jealous for his people. And in this case, he is jealous of his people, Judah. So when an enemy oppresses them, God responds with perfect jealousy, and he will take vengeance. The second attribute for God listed here is that God is slow to anger. Now, this is a little bit of a surprising thing for Nahum to throw in here in this context. You know, God is jealous for his people. He's going to take vengeance. We might think that God would be quick to anger, given the circumstances. But the scriptures tell us over and over that God is slow to anger. It's been 140 years since Jonah was written. And to quote Dr. Davy this morning, when we say that God is slow to anger, aren't you glad? (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Davy. It would have been better if you weren't here, baby. (laughs) Nahum uses this description of God given to us and this is a quotation from Exodus 34.6. It's really interesting to me that this is the exact same text that Jonah quoted last week when he said that, we, I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Nahum picks up on that again and goes back to that text in Exodus 34 and says, God is slow to anger. But verse 3 here continues on and says that God, that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is continuing the quotation from Exodus 34. He doesn't include all of the verse, but he comes back to that in Exodus 34, 7. That God will by no means clear the guilty. God is slow to anger and merciful and gracious, but he is also a just God. He will eventually punish sin. No one will get away with wrongdoing. Sin will be punished. The third attribute for God we get in these opening verses is that God is great in power. So I don't want you to think in any way that God's delay in punishing the wicked or in taking vengeance against his enemies is because God lacks the power to act immediately. No, God is the righteous judge who will do the right punishment 
at the right time. Nahum begins his book here by establishing the character of God. Next, he turns to how God works in the world. Look at verse 3. We'll start in the middle of the verse there. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. One of the ways that God works is through the things he has created. So the storms, the seas, the mountains, the earth, all of God's creation are under his control, and God works through them to accomplish his purposes. Nahum highlights God's power and control over creation. Verse 6 asks, who can stand before God and endure his wrath? And the answer is no one. Nineveh will not stand. And anyone who opposes God today, they will not stand either. Moving along, let's take a look at verse 7 and see how these next verses describe God's care for Judah. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. The Lord is good. Nahum gives us another attribute for God here. He points out God is good and then he begins to contrast what that looks like for those who trust him and those who oppose him. For those who trust God, he is a refuge. For those who oppose God, they will eventually be destroyed. Then in verse 12, God speaks to Judah. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. For the first time in Nahum, God speaks directly and he is speaking to Judah. These are words of comfort, of hope in a time when things seemed hopeless. Assyria was at full strength and seemed invincible. You may remember last week, Pastor Brent told us that the walls of Nineveh were 100 feet high and 50 feet thick. But God says that they are going to be cut down and wiped out. Verse 12 must have been hard for Judah to hear that God was the one responsible for afflicting Judah. This is a hard truth for us to consider when we encounter trials. But ultimately, I would say there is a lot more hope in a God who is in control and can do something about it when we cry out to him than a God who does his best but is powerless to help. 
God is in control of all of our circumstances, even the hard things we go through. And this may be the reason Nahum begins by reminding Judah of the character of God, of his goodness, and of his great power. I want to make a point of application for us today. If you are going through something really hard and you are struggling to understand what God is doing, please remember God's character. We don't have to understand why things happen in our lives to believe what Scripture has revealed about God's character. Nahum reminds us that God is jealous for his people. God is slow to anger. He is great in power. He is good. And he's a refuge for those who trust him. After God tells Judah that he has afflicted them, he tells them that he will no longer afflict them. He's ready to deliver them. He will break them free from their bondage to Assyria. Moving along, we see in verse 14 that God speaks to Nineveh. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. God is going to cut them off. He's going to bring an end to the Assyrian Empire. Their boasting and arrogance will be ended as the house of their gods will be brought down. But chapter 1 ends on a note of positive note here as we see the joy of deliverance. Look at verse 15. It says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum looks forward to a time when a runner will come, bringing good news of a serious fall that God has delivered, and for them to finally experience peace. Then they will be free to worship God the way he has commanded them, and they will never have to worry about Assyria again. Chapter 1 highlights the character of God. Chapter 2 describes God's coming judgment on Nineveh. Look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. In this verse, Nahum warns Nineveh to get ready for battle. But as we will soon see, any preparations are futile. The battle has already been decided. Then in verse 2, Nahum offers comfort to Judah. It says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Although their wealth and resources have been stripped away, after year after year of paying tribute to Assyria, Nahum tells Judah that their majesty will be restored. Their power and prosperity will once again be something they will enjoy. Verses 3 through 5, Nahum gives us a description of Nineveh's attackers. Look at verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. The soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. 
on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. These verses are describing Nineveh's attackers. They are not mentioned by name. But these verses describe a success against Assyria that would be hard for Judah to imagine. As soldiers and chariots run through their streets. But then Nahum goes further and describes Nineveh's defeat in verse 6. Look at verse 6. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. These verses describe Nineveh's fall in five stages. The first stage is in verse 6 where the gates are opened. And the city falls. The second stage is in verse 7. And this is, a, this is a verse with very difficult language. The ESV uses the word mistress. But that is a word that could also be translated um, to refer to the city of Nineveh. Or possibly the statue of the goddess Ishtar. The meaning of that word is unclear. And also the meaning of the word stripped could be translated exiled. And so I think what is happening in this verse is it's describing the humiliation of Nineveh as it goes into exile and is carried off. What it has done to other nations is now being done to itself. And the second stage in Nineveh's defeat is as Nineveh goes into exile. The third stage is in verse 8. We see that Nineveh is no longer a threat to anyone. It has been drained empty, to use the water analogy in the verse. And the water will not come back. It's interesting to note the ineffectiveness of the people shouting after the water here. They're saying, halt, halt. But of course, it doesn't stop. But if we look back in chapter 1 and verse 4, look at what happens when God speaks to the water. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. God's voice is powerful over creation, over nature, and even the waters listen to him. But here in Nineveh, there is no hope as their city is drained empty. The fourth stage in Nineveh's defeat is the plundering of Assyria. Assyria has been plundering nations for 200 years. And it has collected what Nahum describes here as treasure and wealth without end. And yet, all of that treasure and wealth will now be carted off and taken elsewhere as Nineveh itself is plundered. And then the fifth and final stage of Nineveh's fall is the emptying of the city and the absolute terror and fear of the people. 
Nineveh has been terrorizing nations for years. And everyone was fearful of them. And now they will experience that same terror and fear right there in Nineveh. Verses 11 through 13, Nahum talks about lions and talks about how there will be no more strangling lions. Let's look at verse 11. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Bailey notes in his commentary that throughout its history, Assyria referred to itself as the lion and used the lion's tactics as its own. The armies of Assyria ruthlessly attacked its prey, strangling its enemy's cities and bringing its prey to its lair. But the lion symbolized strength, cunning, and lordship. And to the nations conquered by Assyria, the lion symbolized ruthlessness. But Assyria will no longer be a strangling lion. Why not? Because God speaks decisively. He says, I am against you. God is the one opposing Assyria. God is the one bringing an end to Assyria. And he uses the name for himself here, the Lord of hosts. A name often used in the Old Testament in military contexts. God oversees the armies of heaven. All other armies pale in comparison to God's army. And God's might. And as a result for Assyria, there will be no more chariots, no more lions, no more prey, and no more messengers. Chapter 2 describes God's coming judgment on Nineveh. God knows the future. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And Nahum is writing these details approximately 15 years before the fall of Assyria. These are promises that Judah will have to wait for. And I'd like to make a point of application here as well that we often have to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled in our lives. This is what it means for us to live by faith. But 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is not slow to fulfill his promises. His timing is perfect. He acts at just the right time. And we see many examples in Scripture where people waited for God to fulfill his promises, but we also see in Scripture over and over again how God always keeps his promises. We can trust him to keep his promises to us. Nahum describes the coming judgment on Nineveh in chapter 2. Chapter 3 further describes the coming woe upon Nineveh. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, 
dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and dev deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Verse 1 lists four reasons for pronouncing woe upon the city. Blood, lies, plunder, and victims. Calling Nineveh a bloody city is no exaggeration. Much has been written on the atrocities of Assyria. Many of the practices are unspeakable. They loved to prolong pain and inflict torture on their victims. They would skin people alive. They loved to terrorize people and were extremely cruel. Verses 2 and 3 use vivid words to describe the sights and sounds in Nineveh as she is attacked and the bodies pile up. Verse 4 uses metaphorical language to compare Nineveh's actions to that of a prostitute. If I could quote from Bailey again, he says, Nineveh's political leadership behaved as a prostitute, enticing poorer and weaker nations with its wealth and charms. As a harlot dispenses her favors for hire, so Nineveh, like a scheming prostitute, has cunningly sold her military aid to other countries. The weaker nations fell victim to the allure of Assyria's wealth and power. They looked to Assyria for protection and material wealth. But they soon learned that like the prostitute, the promises of Assyria only led to destruction. In verses 5 through 7, Nahum continues by describing the utter humiliation of Nineveh. Look at verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? For the second time, God speaks directly to Nineveh and says, Behold, I am against you. God is the one opposing Assyria. God is the one doing this. For the second time, he identifies himself as the Lord of hosts. The powerful God who is mighty in battle. The language in these verses is difficult to read. It's difficult to hear. It's difficult to understand. Nahum continues the metaphorical comparison to a prostitute. God will completely and utterly humiliate Assyria. These nations had been betrayed and enslaved by Assyria. So Nahum asks, who's going to grieve for them? The answer is no one. No one would come and comfort Nineveh in her distress. The comfort, which is the word Nahum, is for Judah. In verse 8, Nahum continues, and he describes the vulnerability of Nineveh. Look at verse 8. 
Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. And then Nahum directs his attention to Nineveh and says, You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide, open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. These verses describe the vulnerability of Nineveh. Nahum's prophecy would have been hard for Judah to believe. Could Assyria really be defeated? Would Judah really be free of their bondage to Assyria? And so in verses 8 through 10, Nahum provides them an example to give them hope. He talks to them about Thebes. Thebes had been defeated in 663 B.C. Thebes was the best defended city ever conquered until Nineveh. Thebes had been considered invincible. It had existed for over 1,400 years, and yet it fell. Nahum gave this example as a demonstration that Nineveh was also vulnerable. Nineveh could fall, and Nineveh would fall. And then moving along, verse 14 and following describes the hopelessness in trying to defend themselves. Look at verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Nahum taunts Assyria to prepare to defend itself, even though anything it tried to do to defend itself would prove hopeless. The end has already been decided. God knows what he's going to do. But the end book ends on a positive note as we see the joy that comes with justice. Look at the second part of verse 19. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The book ends with the joy and justice. Nineveh doesn't have any friends. Her actions have come back to bite her. Justice will be served, and when it happens, 
everyone will rejoice over the news of her fall. Everyone rejoices to be free of this evil regime. This is certainly good news for Judah. As I bring this sermon to a close, it's been a very difficult text to work through, but I just want you to think about a couple of things in closing. One, as we look around our world and see injustice and cruelty taking place all around us, please remember that God has written the final chapter on all the nations of the world, not just Assyria. Jesus is coming back. He will one day rule the world in righteousness. So we worship Jesus as our perfect king. He is worthy of our worship. And second, I would say that Nahum shows us the holiness of God and his righteous punishment for sin. Yet Jesus absorbed all of that punishment for us when he was on the cross. He experienced the wrath of God for us so we could be forgiven, so we can be cleansed and welcomed into his family as perfect children when we trust Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that in our most dire times of need, we can trust you. You are a great God, a righteous and just God. Lord, help us to trust you when we don't understand the things taking place in our lives. Help us to trust your goodness. Help us to understand that you have a plan that you are working out to its right end. Father, I pray that you would help us to rejoice. Lord, even as I think of the words of a well-known song that your blood has washed away my sin. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. And once your enemy, I'm now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Father, I pray that whatever challenges we face us today, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to know a peace that passes all understanding while we wait for you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.